in Mark chapter 6. Uh, we're going to see two responses to Jesus. We have been now uh, on the other side of the cross. We have looked at Resurrection Sunday last week, and now we look at this week. And we see on the other side of that, even in our scripture this morning from John, we see some things that give this glorious response, something that I think the church has lived out in a lot of different ways. See, if you remember uh, something from last week, if I say, he is risen, you say, all right, Uh, okay, I will say, uh, there was a group of people who may be a little older than you in the first service who knocked it out of the park, um, and they told me to not prompt you to just say it and see what happens, Uh, they won, so um, not that it's a competition, on everything, but you know, sometimes Marcus, we have to have a little competition. I know you can identify with this, right? So, as we get started, we're going to look at two responses to Jesus. We're going to see uh, Jesus in his hometown, and then we're going to see the disciples sent. And as we look at both of those two responses, I want to focus in on the day of the resurrection. Those of you who are here for the Good Friday service may have heard some of this, but I want you to to think back on Resurrection Sunday. Some of the events that begin to unfold. Jesus is up and about. Uh, that alone worth celebrating and enjoying. But nobody knows it yet, or only a few. And so these two guys who have come from Emmaus, which is about eight miles away, have been in Jerusalem. They've been celebrating Passover and everything else. And then Jesus dies, and they're heartbroken and trying to figure all of this out. And so they begin their slow and mournful walk home. And as they're walking, they encounter this unknown guy who's (laughs) curious to their crestfallen behavior. And they they say things like, are you the only one who hasn't been in Jerusalem who doesn't know what's going on? And he plays dumb and says, no, I really don't know what you're talking about. Uh, And then he begins this, this conversation that starts with Genesis 3 and moves all the way through the Hebrew Bible pointing to why Jesus had to die and what he had to do and what he was supposed to accomplish. And they get to the end of the day, and the end of the day, he pretends like he's going to move on, and then they say, no, 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 come eat with us. And so he does, and as soon as he, he breaks the bread, immediately their eyes are open and they understand who he is, and then he disappears and ends up eight miles away, back in Jerusalem. I don't know, those of you who are Star Trek fans, maybe this was Scotty beamed him up. Um, The technology may have existed, we don't know. Uh, Or there's the thought, he's Jesus, and he can pretty much, he's got body 2.0 now, and he can go from eight miles away. I, I would love to be able to do this. I'm hoping that in resurrection, that's something, just for once, to be able to say, um, I'm in Houston... See, Rome. Rome sounds good. Let's go to Rome, God. Can we go to Rome and, and, and instantly be transported? Anyway, Jesus does that, and that's where John 20 picks up. It says, in the evening. So all this other stuff has happened, unbeknownst to the rest of the disciples. And he shows up, and they're a little astounded for obvious reasons. And then there's Thomas. I think Thomas gets a bad rap. What do we always call Thomas? What's his nickname? The doubter, doubting Thomas. No, I think Thomas is the first scientist in the disciples. 
He's got to know the truth and he's got to see it for himself. He's not going to take somebody else's word for it and neither should we. We have to discover this for ourselves. And, and Thomas was like, this sounds great and all, but I think you had too much wine. I'm not convinced unless I see it myself. And if I see it, then we'll talk. And so Jesus, in his wisdom and in his grace, eight days later, I mean, Thomas is going to have to hear about this for several days. I still don't buy it. Eight days later, Jesus shows up. Thomas is present this time. And Thomas has this worshipful experience because now he has seen the risen Lord. And, and maybe even, I don't know if I would do this, go up and, and, and touch. You know, there's a side of me that I'm curious uh, I would love to think that I would, and then I think, I, I'm good, I'm good. You're, you're there, I get it. And he worships. And we call Thomas the doubter, but I think Thomas is many of us. I'm not going to be convinced by your words alone. I've got to experience it for myself. I've got to understand it for myself. And the other disciples had experienced it and shared that experience, but it wasn't until Thomas got it for himself. But we notice that Jesus addresses his lack of faith. But then he says, you've seen me and you believe. How much greater those who will not see and have not seen, how much greater their faith. We, 2000, nearly 2,000 years later, place our faith and our trust in a risen Lord that we cannot physically see. And I think we can identify with Thomas. But I want to look today pre-resurrection. I want to look today at a group of people that should have responded differently to Jesus and how the disciples kind of processed two different possibilities of what should happen. I want us to look at the first disciples going, he is risen. He is risen. <laughs> I get that. Okay, now, uh, and they get it, and then we see Thomas a little bit later, and he gets it, and we see these two beginning responses of what I think is the Christian experience. And then to see before that happens how he's received. And so I, I want you to hear these thoughts not as an outsider, but I want you to kind of picture yourself as one of the twelve watching this first encounter because I think this is a head-scratcher moment for you, for me, for all of us that we go, I don't understand why. And then the next group, the step of obedience. So let's look at Mark chapter 6. Let's start in verse 1. He went away from there and came to his hometown and his disciples followed him. And on the Sabbath, he began to teach in the synagogue, and many who heard him were astonished, saying, Where did this man get these things? What is this wisdom given to him? How are such mighty works done by his hands? Is not this the, the carpenter, the son of Mary and brother of James and Joseph and Judas and Simon? Are not his sisters here with us? And they took offense at him. And Jesus said to them, A prophet is not without honor except in his hometown and among his relatives and in his own household. And he could do no mighty work there 
except that he laid his hands on a few sick people and healed them. And he marveled because of their unbelief. And he went about among the villages teaching. If I'm a, a disciple, if we look back to Mark chapter 5 from last week and we see Jesus raising someone from the dead, we see uh, Peter, James, John experiencing this, my thought is if we're going to Jesus' hometown that maybe he would receive a different kind of welcome. They have, Jesus has been hanging out at their place. He's been doing stuff around all these villages. So the disciples are looking at it going, hey, we're going to Jesus' place. I bet they're going to treat him like a hero. They're going to, we would say, they're going to treat him like a rock star or a country star. I don't know. that Anyway, um, someone worth giving a hero's welcome to. I mean, he's done these teachings. He's done these miracles. He's cast out demons. He's healed people. This should be amazing. And the disciples see a group of people who know Jesus better than anybody because maybe they experienced him when he was an eight-year-old being rowdy in synagogue. And they're thinking 30 years in the future and thinking, you know, um, I remember you when. But here's the thing. He's Jesus. So we can't say that he was sinning because then we kind of lose who Jesus is. But they have this thought, I, I remember you. Or maybe they came up and they said, uh, hey, Jesus, I'm so glad you're back in town. My table has a little bit of a wobble. Can, can you do something about that? Um, I have a bookshelf. Well, I have a scroll shelf that I would like. It wouldn't be a bookshelf yet. Uh, but I have, I have this shelf. Can, can you come by? And, and they're so familiar with who Jesus is that they can't see him for who he is. They're so familiar with how he would have spoken, with how he would have moved, with how he would have lived, that him coming home wasn't a big deal. They, they've heard him. They've heard about his messages. They've heard about his miracles. They've heard, we know that because we go back a couple of chapters and Jesus' mom and brother show up. But they're not there to, to see the show. They're not there to experience his teaching. They're not there to watch him heal. They're there to take him home because they think he's nuts. And so they're looking at it and they're saying, uh, okay, Jesus, first of all, uh, we have some, some carpentry stuff that you know, we need a little help with. And two, this crazy talk, you going all over the place with no rabbinical training, no, no experience, none of this, it, it's time to go home. They're coming to take me away, ha 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 ho, he he to the funny farm where life is great. They're coming to get him. So a couple of chapters back, they've heard. And so he walks into town. And my thought is this should be like Palm Sunday part one where everybody's laying down the branches. They're like, woo, it's Jesus. And they're, but they're not. They're not. In fact, the scripture gives us this indication that his reception is he goes to the synagogue, which had been his practice. He, he teaches, and they're like, who does this guy think he is? If we look at Luke 4, I think maybe a, a second opportunity for Jesus to do this, they ask, who does this guy think he is? And he says, I'm the fulfillment of this prophecy in Isaiah. And they kind of get worked up, and then he says, hey, there's this, Elijah could have gone anywhere, but, and there were widows all over the place, but no, he goes outside of Israel. 
And they get all up in arms and take him to this high point and are ready to throw him off. And he gets two chances to do something in front of them. What I find very, very interesting is verse 5. He could do no mighty work there. As if their lack of faith somehow inhibited the ability to do the things he was doing. As if their over-familiarity with him caused him to be ineffective. Now, I don't want to go too far into this because I don't think Jesus can be limited in that way. But there seems to be something connected with the faith of the people and Jesus' ability to do something. They are so familiar with him that he can do no good work in their presence except heal a few. And he mentions that almost as if it's, a, it's a, a shameful thing. He's in his hometown, and he can heal a few. Blows my mind. And I'm thinking of this as Peter, James, and John, looking at this going, we just saw him raise somebody from the dead. <laughs> Speechless. Trying to figure out how people who know him the best don't see this. In fact, if anything, they may want him to perform signs and for whatever reason he can't or won't. And their lack of faith, to quote Darth Vader, is very disturbing. I can see this. I, I, I don't know if you maybe heard of this guy. His name is Mark Lowry. Um, used to sing with the Gaither Vocal Band. Has a pretty... Uh, professional comic career and he, he gives this, this thought as he's explaining himself as the middle child and why can't you be more like your brother and so he starts relating that to Jesus and, and his brothers and sisters and Mary coming to the brothers and saying why can't you be more like Jesus and then his retort is well why can't you um, and then there's this next thought of uh, he's doing so well in his classes well of course he is he wrote the book and so there's this over-familiar thought that seems to be invading the way Nazareth responds to Jesus. But if, I think if we look at it for ourselves today, maybe we come to the conclusion, I've read that scripture. I've read that text. I've, I've heard these stories. I've, I've heard it and I've heard it and I've heard it. And so I'm comfortable with it and maybe overexposed. And so we sing songs like Amazing Grace but we don't think of the words. Amazing grace, what's for lunch? And, and we're not, you know, we're not focused in on that at all. And we, we're overly exposed to the, the scripture so much so that we say, yeah, I know this, I've read this, I could teach this in my sleep. And this is something I'm, I, I find myself struggling with. Being so comfortable with the scripture that, oh yeah, I've read that. And not coming back to it as, as if it were the living, breathing word of God, the scripture revealed by God to man that we can know him. Oh, I've heard that before. And it being so familiar in my life that God could not use it again to speak into my life. Much like the response of those in Nazareth. And so I, I ask you today, do you need a, a, a fresh word? Not new. There doesn't need to be anything added to this. 
but do you need a fresh word? Do you need to be able to come to the scripture and make it, or allow it rather, to come back alive? Not because it's lost anything, but because we've lost focus with it. I'm too comfortable. And I think that first response is one that I'm guilty of, and I think many of us are guilty of, that we're so comfortable that it cannot do anything in our lives, that Christ and the Holy Spirit cannot bring about a greater work in us or through us. Now, don't hear me say that it's all a matter of how your faith manifests God's work in your life. I'm not saying that at all. God can do whatever he wants. And and there are those in, in our greater Christian family who teach that it's all about how my faith gets God to do something. I can't and don't want to control God. And my faith or lack of faith doesn't control God. But I think my responsiveness to him does inhibit my understanding of his work in my life, in our lives. And so I go to the next response. I go to the next thing that I think we have to look at. Mark chapter 6, starting in verse 7. He called the twelve and began to send them out two by two. And gave them authority over the unclean spirits. He charged them to take nothing for their journey except a staff. No bread, no bag, no money in their belts, but to wear sandals and not put on two tunics. And he said to them, whenever you enter a house, stay there until you depart from there. And if any place will not receive you, and if they will not listen to you, when you leave, shake off the dust that is on your feet as a testimony against them. Check this out, verse 12. So they went out and proclaimed that people should repent. And they cast out many demons and anointed with oil many who were sick and healed them. The twelve were sent out six different directions, paired up with somebody and given the same authority that Christ has to heal the sick and to cast out demons and to proclaim the gospel sent out. Now, this sounds very much like the beginning of something that will be a command to all of us in Matthew 28 and in Acts chapter 1. The command to to go and make disciples, to go and, and not just spread the word, but do the things that God has done. And so the disciples see a second response. And I think Nazareth helps them to understand it that much greater. Because now they understand that in order for Christ to do his work through them, they have to be obedient. They have to be willing. They have to be responsive. And so what we see as Jesus sends them out, he doesn't send them out with a lot of stuff. Take one tunic, take sandals that will probably wear out. Trust as you go that people will take care of you. And if they don't, it's not about you. It's about your message. And just kind of dust off your feet and move on. But I think for us as we go, let's not focus on those who won't receive it, but for those who may receive it, the thought is that we must go and trust God to do the rest. We must go where God sends us and trust him to take care of our needs. We must go and be faithful to the call and go knowing that God will protect us, that God will provide, and that God will do all that he is going to do. My part, my response, is to be obedient. The disciples saw Nazareth, and then they saw themselves, and they said, I, will, I don't want to do that. I want to go this way, and they went. 
And scripture tells us they did crazy weird stuff like casting out demons. Jesus may or may not have been with some of them. I want you to think about that for just a second. Marcus, Jesus comes to you and says, here, you have all the authority that I have to cast out demons and to make people well and to go preach the gospel. And you go, and the first time you're like, let's see what happens. Demon be gone, and they leave. That might cause reason to do it again and again and again because you see Jesus working through you. He's given you this authority. I don't know about you. I have authority on a lot of things, but I don't know about the whole casting out demons on my own. In my name, I cast you out. But we see somebody practicing that in Acts, and the demon-possessed guy literally jumps him and kills him. Paul, I know. Jesus, I know. I have no idea who you are. And, and so we see this, this authority somehow given to them, and they go in faith. They go walking where God tells them to go. And it's an amazing thing that begins to happen. In their faith and in their obedience, they go, and God does things through them. This time of year, my juniors start thinking about college. Our seniors are well past the thought of thinking about college. In fact, they're done with school and ready to be out of, can I get a witness? Amen and amen. And uh, as we look at this, I can't tell you how many conversations I've had with students who say things like, I want to know what God wants me to do, but I don't know what I'm supposed to, where I'm supposed to go or what I'm supposed to be. And then those who feel like they're called to ministry go, well, I feel like I'm called to ministry, but I need a plan B. Why? Well, ministry doesn't make a lot of money. It's not very practical, blah, 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 blah. And it makes me want to vomit. Sorry, it's graphic, but it is. It's, it's true because it's called a ministry. If this is what it is, that, that God will supply and provide. That doesn't mean that we sit idly by, but it doesn't mean that we have a plan B because God's plan's not going to work out. But can I gently say that we're all called? Not all are called to vocational ministry, but we're all called. We're all called to live, at our, live out our faith as we go. As you go into your spheres of influence, you are called today to live out your faith. We gather together to encourage one another in scripture and, and, and praise, but we are to take it with us. It's not to stay here. It's to go into our, our schools, it's to go into our workplaces, it's to go even to our families, which the family is probably the toughest part as we see with Nazareth because they know everything about us. And to, to live a life that has to explain why we're different. Strange to some. Peculiar. Weird. Some of us may just have weird to deal with. Okay, I get that. But there should be something about us that is winsome. That doesn't mean that we go and we say, oh, I'm living my life in front of you. Come ask me about it. But it's living our lives in such a way that we're, it's part of our conversation. The disciples are going. They're going from place to place. They're having regular coffee. They're having coffee at Starbucks. There is a star. It's actually stars and bucks, right? In Bethlehem. Uh, and a KFC. Why? I don't know. But um, having been to, to Israel, there is a KFC in was it Jerusalem? I think it was in, anyway. And I'm looking around going, that's something. And there was a place called Stars and Bucks. 
in Bethlehem blew my mind. I didn't go get the coffee, but I was curious. It's the idea, though, that everything we do, every action that we take, everything is so intentional, so gospel-oriented that even a non-gospel conversation is our faith lived out. There is no plan B when it comes to disciples living this out. There is no plan B when it comes to the people of faith living this stuff out. We are God's plan for spreading the gospel. Except for maybe one of us in the room, and I'll let you figure out who that is. None of us are perfect. Now, there may be a fight on who thinks they're perfect. Marcus has got it down. Um, no, But none of us are perfect, and yet God has chosen to say, through you, my disciples, the gospel will go out. This is what it means to live the resurrection life. This is what it means to take what we've thought about and prayed about and learned here and live it out on a day-to-day basis. That the, the faith that we have, the resurrection, really is real. That it does impact us. That it does change us. That it does bring about hope and joy, even in situations that don't call for that. As I think about this, and I think about our reading in John 20, you have two responses. Everybody has two responses. To believe it and live it, or to not. To believe it and let it impact every aspect of our lives, or to not. And whether we would say, well, I just have to see it for myself, what is it going to take? Or Christ compels me to do this, and so... Therefore, I'm going to go, and and I don't understand how it works. I don't have all of the answers, but I know that I'm supposed to go. And today, I feel like I'm led to talk to so-and-so. Okay. I don't know what I'm supposed to say, but I'm going to go. There's one more piece of this that I want you to see, though. He sends them out two by two. He sends them out two by two, and there's a reason. Let's say Trevor and I are living day to day, two by two, ministering to people around us. Trevor has an off day. And his off day is such that he just doesn't, I'm a people person, but sometimes people annoy me. And he just doesn't want to be around people. Well, that happens to be the day that for some reason I just had a rocking quiet time. I had a great time with the Lord. And we're walking side by side. And so I'm able to say, you know, I'm going to encourage Trevor today. And we're going to continue to work. Because let's face it, we all have down times. We all have bad days. We all have bad weeks. If we're trying to walk it alone, we are not fulfilling the Christian life. We gather on Sundays to be encouraged with one another, but we also have the opportunity to walk side by side, shoulder to shoulder, with at least one person so that when we are down, they can be the hands and feet of Christ even to us. And when they are down, we can be the hands and feet of Christ even to them. Because even the Lone Ranger had Tonto. I'm sorry, I'm hitting the older ones who would know that. No, no age comments here, okay, not picking. But even the young ones, you saw the worthless movie, I mean the good movie that came out not too long ago. Even the Lone Ranger had Tonto. We are not meant to live this Christian faith 
as a solo act. It was never meant to be that way. Even from here, before resurrection, they're sent out two by two. We gather to grow in community, and then we leave so that we can share the love of Christ with others. And the relationships that we have here, the people that we are growing with, that goes with us, or should. And so I've got three last thoughts for you, challenges really. One, examine your heart as it relates to your obedience and faith. Two, examine your heart in relation to how familiar, familiar, cannot say that word today, familiar you are with the things of God and has it grown to complacency. And three, if you don't have a person with whom you regularly share life, identify that person and begin growing with them and together as you encounter people in your world. A lot of nuts and bolts, practical things for Christian faith in Mark 6 today. And much more that could be said. But I think the challenge before us is, how are you going to live? How are you going to live? And if there are things that you need to confess, now's the time. Bring them before the Lord and ask him to create in you a clean heart. Let's pray together.